All right, are you ready? I believe I am. Check, check, level. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, mine's looking good. Here we are. This is Geek Channel 8 podcast number one. So uh, the idea was just to have friends of mine come on here and talk about pop culture, specifically the history of pop culture, because I like history and I like pop culture. (laughs) And uh, I thought that uh, it would be interesting to do the history of pop culture, because that's not something I've seen or heard, actually, a podcast of before or very few. And so today... With me is my semi-regular co-host, Nat. How's it going, guys? (laughs) So, Nat, we've known each other for, I don't know. I, uh, let's just call it 10 years, Eric. Let's (laughs) let's make it sound. (laughs) Okay, 10 years. Um, We've known each other for at least 10 whole years. (laughs) And um, in that time, we've had many a discussion about um, pop culture stuff. You um, you actually are the one that introduced me to Apocalypse Now, a movie I had not seen. Ah, um, yeah, but, and it, to this day, one of my favorites. But uh, I love that movie. It it's about uh, you know traveling into the jungle um, and uh, the primal nature of the jungle, which is something we will be talking about today, uh, a little bit later. Um, but do, uh, yeah, do I have just one moment to point out. Last night, I realized the vast and many similarities between Apocalypse Now and The Lord of the Rings. We don't have to dwell on this for too long, but like, really, you could smush those together into an amazing video collage. And, Interesting. Uh, right? Maybe we'll talk about that on a future podcast. I'm, um, I'm totally okay revisiting this. It's, it's a brand new idea. I have not chewed it yet, but, uh, but it's in right. there. Let's let's put a pin in that. What have you been? Uh, what films, videos, comics, books, you know, TV shows uh, that have you been um, watching lately? This came as a link to me like two days ago. I've just found out about it. Uh, there's a gentleman on YouTube. His channel is Nigel's N I G E L apostrophe S. Um, he has taken the Star Wars radio dramas from NPR back in the 80s. Oh yeah. Chopped out all of the ex- all of the intros and outros. Uh so basically you can listen to the entire Star Wars radio drama in like 5 hours. Wow. Um it's weird cuz they have this like very 1940s pacing and exposition and everything to them. I remember those radio dramas when I was a kid and I actually cassette taped them off of the radio and chopped out the uh, intros and so that I could listen to them too. Dude, I could like, I could recite to you the litany of differences between the radio show and the movies. Like I don't get me wrong. I was pretty cool at 13, but like, I wasn't not going to compulsively listen to star Wars and keep a notebook of all the differences. Cool. I, I was totally that guy. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're again. Search them up. Nigel's remix. I think it's Nigel's remix. Um, like it's so much fun listening to these again. You had mentioned that they were that they have like nineteen forties um, sort of pacing and nineteen forties 
so that was the heyday of radio dramas. And yeah. um, we'll probably talk about those in a future podcast too. But the, if you think about it, the 1940s were so much closer in time to when Star Wars existed and when those radio dramas were made <laughs> than Star Wars is, the original New Hope is, to now, right? <laughs> think about it. <laughs> no, you're old. No. Don't make this about me, dude. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you think about it, it really is, because the 40s was just, you know, 30 years earlier yeah. then, you know? And, you know, the first Star Wars film came out in, what, 77? So... We're recording this in 2020. You're you're the math problem. You're the word problem yeah. guy. <laughs> no, this is. Um, I am not comfortable with any conclusions I can draw from this. I guess is where I'm going. Like, let, let's move on. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> moving on. What I want to talk about on the show a lot is like looking at very iconic characters and how they've changed and been reinvented over time. And uh, one of the earliest characters to make an appearance on, on the film screen and um, come back year after year, decade after decade uh, is Tarzan. Um, the first Tarzan film was Tarzan of the Apes in 1918, starring Elmo Lincoln as Tarzan or as the adult version of Tarzan. I believe Gordon Griffith was the, uh, the name of the boy version of Tarzan. Um, and so I thought we should go back and rewatch that. And um, before I, I, we start talking about that, I'll say that I started watching it. And then I realized that I had never read the book. And it was really hard to, to parse it out in some ways without knowing the history. I wanted to know how closely it followed the book and stuff like that. So I actually dug up this copy started reading it i'm not very far in it i'm i'm only in the you know first several pages somewhere i am curious with what you've read so far i would like to compare that uh, contrast that to the filmmaking because like a lot of it if you don't mind if i jump in yeah like, jump I, in i'll start like what i realized in the first two minutes of the film when they're a, I want to know, when was B-roll invented? Because I don't know that B-roll had technically been invented when they filmed this in 1918, but they put together what I would refer to as like a solid minute and a half of B-roll exposition shots to the point where I was bored of looking at like obviously zoo-filmed creatures trying to, oh, Africa. They're trying to establish that this is taking place in Africa. They're trying to establish like the character and the location and stuff. But it just kept going. And like, they hadn't invented, they hadn't discovered how long exposition needs to take in video. They hadn't like... Well, I think it's that and I think it's something else. Remember, this is this film was made in 1918. So just seeing, if you watch some of the late 1800 films, which isn't that long before, you know, 20 years before, they were just, we're going to film this animal. You know, we're going to film this train coming into train coming into station. You know, is, is this the part where you tell me that this Tarzan movie has more in common with like the Archduke Ferdinand than uh, <laughs> I, I think it might. I think it might. Um, I think that, that just seeing those animals on film. Remember, a lot of people wouldn't have seen those gorillas 
very yeah. interesting part of this whole story. Gorillas were still being discovered, right? Not all types of gorilla species had been discovered by 1918, right? Yeah. So they were a. It was a very new thing. So a lot of times Tarzan, and this is why I don't think Tarzan has fared so well in recent decades, is because at that time the world was still seen as big and yeah. unknown. And we live in a world that's seen as small and interconnected, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons. But we'll talk a little bit about the enduring power of Tarzan. I remember when, when I first had mentioned that we were going to do this podcast, I didn't want it to be about whatever the latest hot thing was. You know, and Tar I met Tarzan I, on ice, Disney, yeah. I am sure. Well, I like, mentioned I mentioned Tiger King, which is the currently most popular show on Netflix. And I was like, I don't want to make I don't want to talk about Tiger King. And then I realized as we started doing this, I can't not talk about Tiger King because Tiger King <laughs> is actually like the Tarzan tropes are throughout Tiger King. You know, yeah. um, you know, it has. I, I'm not agreeing, mind you. I'm just really eager to hear this comment. Like, I, I want to know how the please pull these two together because that would be amazing okay we'll do that at the end let's first talk about um a little bit about uh, keep jumping in okay so we've only talked about the the very beginning which yeah b-roll wasn't really a thing yet um and and uh, so it takes a while to get going yeah they they, they uh, there was this weird pause um but okay okay so after that they jump back to england they're talking um and it takes me a minute to realize when 1918 actually was. You know, like, feminism was a very different thing. Um, a few minutes into the film, there was the, the Greystokes, Lord and Lady Greystoke, whose name I've forgotten and are not important to this, but they're the, and they're being sent on a mission. Or, excuse me, Lord Greystoke is being sent on a mission, and Lady Greystoke gives this, what is bravery only for men? Like insisting that she go with her husband. And then, and here, like, you can tell when men are writing this, right? Even like early feminism, she says, is bravery only for men? And then she turns to her husband and insists she go as well. Tell him I'll be going with you. Like it was this weird half feminist thing that I found, I don't, I, I, I don't want to say charming, but it was like clearly somebody, clearly a dude wrote it. Clearly he was trying to empathize with the feminism of 1918 and he missed the mark, but I appreciate his effort. Yeah, I think it was really progressive in that way. Uh, it's it's got some problems with race, which we might get into, oh, but, but I've got the, but, the rest of my, yeah, the notes but, are about that. But, but as far as gender goes, it was pretty progressive for the time. I think even in the book, she doesn't insist in the book that she go with him because that's the whole reason, you know, we get Tarzan. She's pre already pregnant at the time. Right. But um, they're called the Claytons in the book. And um, they are, Greystoke is their title. Um, Lord and Lady Gray Greystoke. And... Um, you know, he was doing it to advance his position in the government. Um, he wanted to be reassigned and they sent him to Africa. Taking a shittier job to get ahead in your career. Like, hey, point of note, 
that's still the same in the 21st century. It'll probably always be the like, <laughs> like yeah, sure, sure, I'll go six thousand miles from my home, family, dogs, and stuff. If that'll make me a more valuable employee, can't can't wait. I will say in the book, um, there's a significantly longer bit on the ship um, to get there. And it reminds me a little of Dracula, the novel Dracula. There is a lot of mood building that happens in both those novels about being on the ship, traveling to the unknown. There's a threat of mutiny on both of them as a constant undercurrent. And it's just interesting that we don't really think about that stuff anymore because nobody travels by ship anymore. You know, yeah. everybody or uh, after this pandemic, they certainly won't be traveling by ship anymore. <laughs> I just I just want to think like because mutinies happen because you are at sail with somebody for months and months and months. And if they are cruel, then obviously, you know, mutiny is a is a I don't want to call it a valid tool, but look, if it's the only tool you've got to address complaints, it's what you do. I get it. But think about this for one moment. How terrible of an airline pilot would you have to be to ferment mutiny within like, what, a two hour international flight? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you would have to be super bad. I bet it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> also mutinies today way quicker. Like, what do you, you kind of land and I, there must be that awkward moment after landing where you're just kind of like, uh, so everything's cool then. Okay. And you move on. But, I have uh, no idea. The next thing I've got, and you were right. Like that part, I have no idea how long it took in the book, but it was two minutes on screen. And it was really a bunch of actors shooting back and forth across what I believe is a model tied up shit, uh, ship and a lot. And then one guy conking somebody else on the head. The important part is that we establish Bin, one of the sailors, saves the family from the mutineers. Right. And they get thrown. They Instead of being killed, they are placed overboard just at some random spot. And that's when the troubling, like, so right off the bat. They do the establishing shop of the apes. And it's clearly a bunch of 1918 actors in ape costumes. Like, and I get special effects wasn't the thing it was now. But like, and given their success using live animals later in the film, going with the actors in the terrible costumes was probably the better choice. Like, I get it. Like, I, I get why they did what they did. And keep um, in mind that that we know what apes look like from photos, you know? True. Um, you know, a gorilla might not have been seen by many of the audience members, you know? Yeah. So you tell me that's what a gorilla looks like. Oh, I guess that's what a gorilla looks like, you know? <laughs> yeah. But that's kind of where the, um, how do I, how do I put the, that's where the film starts to be racist. This is the exact point. It goes down the tubes quick from this point. Because the very next thing they introduce is Arab slave traders. Okay. I wanted to talk about the Arab slave traders for a second here. Because I am not going to say that the book is not racist. Okay. I, I, it's certainly as racist as the times were in general. 
But I will argue that the book might be a little less racist than the film. Because and I was wondering that. I was really curious about that. As far as I've gotten anyway, Arab slavers aren't mentioned. Like, there are slavers or... Um, there's the the but but what they suggest what the book seems to suggest is that they're other european colonial powers you, you sorry you you gave the little finger quotes and i was expecting you to use some modern like employment engineers like <laughs> they're friendly let me see if i can find the exact passage but but they they suggest that it's like another european power it's Euro, european colonialism they they uh, the book both acknowledges um european colonialism and condemns it at the same time which is one of the very interesting things about tarzan right yeah. um uh, and we'll talk more unfortunately this this movie tarzan of the apes the 1918 film we're talking about doesn't cover the whole book it's only the first half and in the second half i think it deals a little bit more with tarzan's conflict with white people if this was made by the people that had never seen apes and they were just like, yeah, make it kind of apish. The same is true of Arabs. Like they had never seen an Arab. They were just like, ah, make them wear a head veil. Like, ah, yeah, yeah, it's fine. They wear sheets. Go. The very next thing I wrote down and I took this out of one of the, out of one of the placards, out of one of the little, um, what do you, what do you call it, Eric? You're, you're the film guy. A title the little, card? Like the title cards. Yeah. I, I, highlighted and wrote down the phrase little English brain. And I don't remember the context now, but it was on one of the cards, part of something else. He was still a child at this point. I know that. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, this idea of genetic superiority. Like, you know, it's the fact that he's got an English brain that's going to make him rise above crap tons of that and in fact the next thing i have written down is i stopped and wrote down the entire damn card and it was clothes at the bottom of his english heart survived a longing for them like like you're this feral kid right and you're trapped in the jungle and you've never even met your parents in any kind of way that you would remember but for some reason the thing you want is clothing is pants pants that's the thing that you long for among all other not food not shelter pants and, and i think that was an invention of the film too because they couldn't have him be naked <laughs> because um I, actually yeah. they do film him i mean it's from behind it's it's like but i was actually surprised how comfortable they were filming nude people for the film given how uncomfortable they were even suggesting nudity like 20 or 30 years later. Revisiting what we were talking about earlier, I didn't find any of the references to the slavers specifically. I'll be further along in the book the next time we, we talk. But but what I did find is his reason for going. And it's actually, it's a little lengthy quote, but I think, I think it's worth hearing. What it said was, from the records of the colonial office and from the dead man's diary, we learn that a certain young English nobleman, whom we shall call John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, was commissioned to make a peculiarly delicate investigation of conditions in a British West Coast African colony from 
whose simple native inhabitants, another European power, was known to be recruiting soldiers for its native army, which it used solely for the forcible collection of rubber and ivory from the savage tribes along the Congo and the Aruimi. The natives of the British colony complained that many of their young men were enticed away through the medium of fair and glowing promises, but that few, if any, ever returned to their families. The Englishmen in Africa went even further, saying that these poor blacks were held in virtual slavery, since after their terms of enlistment expired, their ignorance was imposed upon by their white officers, and they were told that they had yet several years to serve. So... So the makers of the film, I mean, that's clearly anti-Belgian sentiment. Like, let's just cut to the chase. They hate the Belgians. But that's hard to portray on film. Yeah, they they have to simplify it. They have to simplify it. So they kind of reach into their bag of tricks like, ah, what can we make more visually apparent? Ah, they're Arabs. And they just make it this entirely different thing. Um. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And but also, you know, there was just racism was endemic in in the in in the culture. So uh, yep. uh Elmo Lincoln who played Tarzan was also in DW Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Wow. And, okay. Um which is you know, was originally called The Klansman. You know, it was like this horrible, horrible film about how great the KKK is, you know? And, and, and we're getting to the rest of the film, but one of the things I looked up, like this film was shot uh, three years before the Tulsa Massacre. You're absolutely correct. This film was made closer to the Civil War than it was to now. Like, that that historical, like, benchmarking like, puts it, yeah, it, it is more antebellum than it is modern but the attitudes they show in it it's weird to think of it as foreshadowing it is weird to think of this movie as like kind of like unrelated foreshadowing to the largest modern massacre of black americans right but yeah. my god the attitude <laughs> like it, every single thing they do and I hope the book is different, is talking about the native superior, the, just the natural superiority of Tarzan. Like, he is better than everyone. And most of it's because he's British and he wears pants and he teaches himself to read, right? Most of it is like, ah, no, Tarzan's... A-. But, like, it's weird how much time they spend establishing him as this pinnacle. That's kind of the whole, the whole point of the novel, right? He, he becomes Lord of the Jungle. You know, he becomes right. he becomes the king of this savage, untamed territory. I and, mean, and watching the film, I guess the thing I am getting from the film is that well, clearly, clearly he would become more. Clearly, had had any white infant been dumped in the jungle, <laughs> yeah. clearly they would have worn pants and taught themselves to read, and they'd become lord of the jungle. Like that, ah, obviously. Yeah, I think the the it does a disservice uh to the character in that way. Um I do think that um so I never took Tarzan seriously growing up. You and I both grew up in an era that was at the bottom 
of Tarzan's popularity. So Tarzan yep. starts out in, there are lots of films between the 19 teens when the book was written, you know, the book was only written a couple of years before the movie came out and like the end of the sixties. And then from the seventies, eighties and nineties, those 30 years, that 30 year span, suddenly there are very, very few Tarzan films made. Uh, like, point of note, you're forgetting the Tarzan cartoon series that we all saw. If you're I, talking about the Disney one. I don't think it was the Disney series. I think it was like Funimation or Hanna-Barbera or one of... I'm pretty sure Hanna-Barbera did it. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting that. But other than that, at least on the big screen, we don't see him again yep. in any major way until the Disney Tarzan film. And that was in 1999. So the very end of the 90s, you know? Um, now... Now he pops back up every so often. Skarsgård was just in one a few years ago. When I grew up, I remember all of the Dances with Wolves, all of the Last Samurai films, right? I remember. And somebody really succinctly called those, that entire genre of movie, sorry about colonialism. Oh, yeah, like yeah. They just, and this is clearly a we're not sorry yet about we don't even think to be sorry about colonialism yet film like thank god thank god the british are here um, yeah that over time the the tarzan films got dumbed down um they'll get better than this but they then they get worse again but uh what i wanted to say is that the trope still lives with us in other ways and this this is you know, one of the ways that struck me when we were originally tar talking about this was Tiger King. I mean, that that hits a lot of the Tarzan tropes, like man's dominion over the beasts is a big, uh, big one. Um, yep. While not racist per se, everybody in, tar in Tiger King is white. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Race plays some role in that. I'm not sure exactly what. But you know what? When you're watching Tiger King, and let me be forthright, I've watched one episode and I couldn't go further. Um, but at no point did I get the feeling that his rise to success was predestined by genetics. Like, I was never, I was never, clearly, clearly he would own a park in Oklahoma with Tiger. Like, no, didn't get any of that. Like, in that way, it was considerably less racist than the, he, he, than the he, he Tarzan might, films. He, he, might, he might disagree, I don't know. It's <laughs> uh, fine. He, they may have cut that part of the interviews out. Like, I don't know. But um, homoeroticism is another uh, running trope through through uh, through the sort of canon of Tarzan. And we'll get into it more when we get later on in, in the movies. Um, but uh, I think there's a definite like, you know, thread of homoeroticism running throughout um throughout the Tarzan mythos. The whole idea of a tiger king, a lord of jungle cats, is not too far off from a lord of the apes. You know? It's, uh... He lives in this jungle-like and, you know, created environment, but, you know... Oh, the last thing I wanted to mention was the jungle itself. Um, yeah. They, they showed a lot of, like, uh, you know stock footage of Africa at the beginning. But when I was watching it, I was like, this doesn't look like the African jungle at all. This mm -hmm. looks like 
a swamp. Did they shoot this in Florida or something? Sure enough, I looked it up and they shot it in a Louisiana swamp. Um, <laughs> nice. So, um, you know, but I guess they, they did what they had to do for the time. I'm more than willing to add on to this to watch the the other half of the book, as it were. Um, but yeah, it, it seems... The stuff I got just solely from the visual was a lot of weird vestigial stuff about America and filmmaking. And, uh, and I'm glad we do better now. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really glad films are, even bad films are way better than that. Okay. Well, we will watch the romance of Tarzan for next week. And that is, that came out later in 1918, same year. And, um, they did, uh, something that, that, filmmaking has only more recently discovered now with um harry potter and stuff like that when they're when you have a really big book it makes sense to break it into more than one movie you know <laughs> rather than have each each book be a movie you know um so i wanted to say that we have an email address uh it's g c eight for geek channel eight g c eight podcast all one word g c eight podcast at gmail.com so if you have any uh anything you want to tell us any opinions about the show you could uh just send us an email and hopefully in future episodes we'll uh we'll we'll be reading some of these emails on the air thank you guys everybody for listening and uh eric this was a great idea thank you for having me watch a really racist tarzan (laughs) well you can it's you're gonna get to re watch a second really racist tarzan (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this is Eric. This is Nat. Signing off.